This is an exciting season for our church looking back with gratitude uh, for all that God has done. And so it's a time for us to uh, use our memory in thanking God. But then it's also a time for us based off our memory and based off all of the data that we've collected over the last decade to look back and then to look forward. We look back with our memory. We look forward with our spiritual imagination, with anticipation of what God can do. In light of who he is, in light of what he already has done, we can be filled with confidence. And that is faith facing forward. And the Bible actually has a, a word to describe what, what a, a believer, a, a person filled with faith, how does a believer think about the future? And the, the biblical word for that is hope. And uh, today not only marks our 10-year anniversary as a church, but it also marks the beginning of a new chapter, a, a, a new stage in our journey where we are now going to be called by the name Hope. And it's our desire that hope not be some arbitrary, uh, a meaningless, just churchy word. We want it to be who we actually are. We want to be characterized by a people who are living in a world without hope, void of hope, a world that is indeed hopeless, and to bring the message of hope. Now the way that we tend to use hope in everyday language is normally to describe some weakly stated personal preference about a desired outcome. I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. I hope the Leafs make it out of the first round of the playoffs. You know, stuff we know will never happen, right? We say, we say hope when we're sort of uncertain. But biblically speaking, that's not what the word means. Hope is a rock, solid, confident expectation of better days ahead. Hope looks back at the faithfulness of God. Hope looks at the cross and the mercy of the grace of God. And then hope looks at the future and says, this must go well. Because I was a sinner, I've been saved by grace. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? And so hope is faith facing forward. It's waiting for something that we know will be better we're waiting for something that we know will be greater. And we're absolutely certain that it's coming. Hope means holding on when everyone else lets go. Hope means continuing to go when everyone else quits. And so today we're going to be studying Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. A beautiful passage about what it means for the church as a community to be a people of hope who follow the God of hope. So I'll begin by reading Romans 15 at, in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. 
that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, here's the word, say it with me, hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles, say it with me, hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in, say it with me, hope. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living and active word. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to celebrate your faithfulness over 10 years. Lord, we look back and marvel at your grace. Lord, we look even further back to something you began to do in the city of Chicago, Lord, and how that overflowed in the city of Oakville. And then calling a group of people to plant a church in in Brampton, Lord. And then providing this place for us to worship in Mississauga. And and all that you have done, Lord. And the planting of, of, of a church in the north end of Toronto, Lord. You have been so faithful. You have been so good. Help us, Lord, as we look back today to look forward with confident expectation. To look forward with hope. And God, I pray right now that through your living and active word, That you would equip us, Lord, to be able to live out what our name means. That as we serve a God of hope, that we ourselves would be people of hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 15 this morning, we're going to see four things that we must be committed to if we're going to live up to our name. Naming something or naming someone is a, is a big deal, isn't it? You, you have a name because your parents chose a name. There was a, certain, there was a certain expectation based off that name. It might have been looking back at a, at a grandparent or an aunt and uncle and naming after someone. It might be the, the meaning of the name or, or a biblical character that meant something to your, uh, to your parents. And there's, there's significance in a name. There's a significance in a family name being passed on and the, and the responsibilities that go along with being part of a family. And today as we contemplate what it means to be called Hope Church, all of us as the family of God, we need to realize that this isn't just a name. This is a calling. This needs to be who we are, what we are about And so we need to be committed to these four things. Here's the first one. As people of hope, we serve one another selflessly. This is who we are. If we're going to be a people of hope, we must serve one another selflessly. 
Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul begins in in verse 1 saying the the, the strong have this obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I need to put that in, in its context. Here at, at Hope Church, we go through the Bible, you know, books at a time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. Right now, we're going through the Gospel of John, but we're, we put that on pause for this special occasion to look at Romans 15. And so because we're just jumping into Romans 15, we need to, we need to understand the broader context that is here that brought Paul to say these things. In the previous chapter, chapter 14, the Apostle Paul has been talking to what he calls weak Christians and strong Christians. And he has been been saying that weak Christians believe believe that a certain way to live their life is the right way and that these strong Christians believe that the way they're living their life is the right way and they're disagreeing with one another. Now the Weak Christians, Paul actually sort of turns the tables. The weak Christians are the ones who seem like they're more committed because they have more rules. The rules about what they eat or rules about what they do on Saturday or on Sunday or rules about alcohol. The weak ones, Paul called them weak, but we often look at people who have different rules and disciplines in their life and we think they're a strong Christian. But Paul turns the tables and says, no, they're weak. And then he, he says the strong Christians are the ones who trust Jesus enough, who have enough freedom to know that, that they don't need to live by legalistic extra rules. And so in, in chapter 14, Paul had been sort of blasting these categories that people had in their mind about what a strong Christian is or what a weak Christian is. And then he he, he addressed all of these issues. Now, and he's dealing with Christian disagreement. And, and in our everyday interactions with other believers, we would find things that we would disagree on. I mean, we, hopefully we could agree, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you would agree that Jesus is the Son of God. That he lived a sinless life. That he died a substitutionary death on our behalf. That he's ascended to the Father. That he sent his Spirit. That he's coming again. These are core things that all of us believe. But when it comes to education choices for our children, whether it be homeschooling or whether it be public school or whether it be Christian school, these are, these are things where we can agree to disagree. We can have passionate reasons about why we're making the choices that we make, but that is not an essential thing. We don't need to be arguing about that over and over and over again. There comes a time where we say, you know what, I've got to agree to disagree. Having wine or, or beer at a, at a meal, so, some Christians would have different opinions about that based off their upbringing. But these are, these are minor issues. And so we need to love one another and understand one another and agree to disagree. What our families choose to do on October 31st, if, if our children put on costumes and go and visit their neighbors or if we hide in the basement. Again, it's not a matter that, that one is right or that the other is wrong, but the thing is we got to get the most important stuff right. 
We got to get Jesus right. We got to get the cross right. We'll work everything else out. That's what Romans 14 is about. Then in Romans chapter 15, Paul is kind of bringing it all together. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We don't need to pressure the other person to come over to our side. We just bear with them. We just, we're patient, we're gracious. And then he says, at the end of verse 1, he says, not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. We are pre-wired for self-pleasure. Every human being wants to please themselves. Babies are not born and with, with, with an impulse, with an instinct to help their mom and dad. They are born with an instinct to be recipients of help. When they're hungry, they aren't pleased and they want someone else to please them. When they aren't comfortable, when uh, all of these things. You ever notice how babies, they can tell when a grown-up is comfortable? When, when a grown-up is sitting and you're holding the baby? The baby sort of knows, that this ain't right. They, they make, you got to get up, right? That's how it, that's how it works. They, 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 the human beings, they're just hardwired, all of us, and it doesn't change as we get older. Did you come to church this morning with an aim to please yourself? Are you thinking, oh, balloons, I don't know about balloons in the house of God. Was, music was awfully loud and the parking lot needs to be uh, repaved. And I, I mean, they've got to figure out their microphone situation. And, and uh, listen, you're not customers. We're, we're all contributors. We don't come here to just get something out of church. We come here to put something in. We are not customers. We are contributors. Verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor. For his good or her good to build him or her up. That needs to be our aim. To please the other. Now just imagine, just imagine what our friendships would look like. What our families would look like. What our neighborhoods would look like. What our workplaces would look like. What our church would look like. If we lived out Romans 15, 1 and 2. Set aside our preferences. Stopped evaluating about whether I'm happy or I'm pleased. And began proactively serving others to please them and to build them up. Imagine the difference that would happen. And then look at the incredible example that the Apostle Paul gives in verse 3. He says, this is why, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He quotes here Psalm 69, which is a psalm that the psalmist wrote to describe really his own suffering and sense of betrayal and being accused and feeling all alone and everyone had turned against him. 
And the psalmist was writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to to really describe his own circumstances. And yet, as the Spirit was inspiring the psalmist to write Psalm 69, it was also looking forward to Jesus Christ and everything that he would go through. And the New Testament authors, from a number of different places, are always quoting Psalm 69. And here it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The psalmist was experiencing people who had turned against God were also turning on him. And wasn't that true of Jesus? How much more was that true of Jesus? Because Jesus was God. But here's the incredible thing. These people were reproaching, which means like to insult or to accuse. So Jesus was insulted and accused. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus went to the cross and died for those very people that were insulting him and accusing him. So read again verse 3 and just think about the astounding biblical understatement that's found in that verse. For Christ did not please himself. I mean, he was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, being born in human likeness and found in human flesh. He became a servant, obedient even to, the, even, even to death on a cross. He didn't please himself. And what we're going to see as we look through these four different commitments that we're going to need to make as people of hope, each one of them is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we don't just serve one another just because. We selflessly serve one another because Jesus has selflessly served us. And when we get our eyes on him, then we are able to Aim at pleasing our neighbor. Then after quoting Psalm 69, David or Paul here wants to then talk about why he quoted the Bible in the first place. In verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have. Hope. Paul now wants to comment on the scriptures. What are the scriptures? Why, why do we need to read the scriptures? Why did he just quote the scriptures in Psalm 69? And this leads us to our second commitment. It's a commitment to the word of God. So yes, we serve one another selflessly, but also make note of this. That we read the Bible expectantly. That we read the Bible expectantly. Paul quotes Psalm 69. He's like, oh, by the way. I want to remind you about what the Word of God is and how the Word of God works and what that means for us as the people of God. Verse 4, he says, Whatever was written in former days. Notice what he's saying here. He says, Whatever was written, not just your favorite coffee mug verses. Not your favorite verses on a poster with a kitten and a rainbow. Whatever was written, the whole Bible was written 
for your instruction. And the extent to which we neglect our reading of the Bible, we lose out on receiving instruction from God. We can't treat the Bible like it's trail mix. My, my kids ask me for trail mix. All they're asking for is Smarties. I pour them a bowl of trail mix. They go to the dining room table. It all ends up on the table. And then they just start separating. We must be committed to the whole counsel of God. Theologians call it the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal means word. Plenary means all. All the words of the Bible are inspired. And all of them are written for our instruction. And then it says that through the endurance and the encouragement, that the Bible is filled with stories and examples of endurance. The Bible is filled with words of encouragement. I mean, just think about Noah building the ark, taking all of these years, all of the faith that was required, when everyone was off living however they wanted to live in rebellion to Towards God, Noah stood alone with his family, the endurance that that required. Think about Sarah, growing up, always wanting to have children, and, and, and yet never seeing that happen, and then being beyond childbearing years, and then God making a promise, and then having to wait another 25 years before it was fulfilled, an example of endurance. Think about Moses. Moses uh, wanting to rescue his people out of Egypt and then having to go 40 years in Midian before coming back and all of the plagues and all of the back and forth with Pharaoh and then wandering through the wilderness for another 40 years with an ungrateful, rebellious people. These examples of endurance and then the words like encouragement, like Isaiah 41.10, do not fear because I'm with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When we read God's word, we see, we see these examples of, endur of endurance. We see these words of encouragement to keep going. God's holding our hand. He won't let go. Don't be afraid. So how do we read God's word with expectation? How do we read it in such a way that we're expecting to receive instruction? We're expecting to receive endurance. We're expecting to receive encouragement. Well, let me share with you uh, four questions that, that one of our small group leaders shared with me that I use in my own personal devotions. We'll call these expectant Bible reading questions. Here's the first one. What is the context? What was written in the chapter before? It, am I looking, is this a poem or is this a letter? Is this a, a historical account? Because all of that affects how we read the passage. Are these lyrics to a song or is this retelling a historical event? We need to know the, we need to know the context. Then secondly, what does this passage say about God or about me? Is God speaking? Is a prophet speaking on God's behalf? What does God want us to know about him? And what does this passage tell me about me? Is God saying something about humankind, of which I am included? Is there an example, a good example or a bad example, that's showing something about who I am? 
Then the next question, what principles, commands, or promises are given? Is there a principle that I need to live by? Is God flat out commanding me to do something? Is there a promise that he is giving to me to hold on to? And then the last question, this is where the rubber hits the road. What is one specific way that I can live by these truths and obey these commands or trust in these promises today? To commemorate this occasion, on your way out, we want to give you a gift to say thank you for coming. We're going to give you a journal. And it's a journal that you can keep, uh, you can bring with it, bring it with you to church, or you can keep it at your desk or at your, your nightstand. And we encourage you that when you read the word, to read it with a pen, to read it with your journal open, expecting that God is going to say something. I was joking around with some of our summer interns um, a little while ago about coming to a meeting without a pen and paper. I don't know if this is just a generation gap or something like that, but I would always tell them that if, if you're coming to a meeting without a piece of paper, here's one of our interns right here, you're expecting me to say nothing important. You've got a pen and paper right now, so that's good. But for, for a leader, if you're trying to give instructions or guidance, if the people that you're trying to lead aren't writing down what you're saying, then the assumption is that you're not saying anything important. It's like those, I know it's normally the good waiters that don't take notes in a restaurant, but they always make me nervous. They confidently say, yep, yep, yep. It just always makes, I just, please just write it down. How much more important is what God wants to say to us through his word than something I want to say at a staff meeting or your hamburger order this afternoon. Reading expectantly means that we come with pen and paper. We are ready to hear from God. And I love, I love how verse 4 goes with verse 5. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Did you catch that? The same words that are used to describe the Bible are the, are the very words that he uses to describe God. See, this is the thing. When we're listening to a sermon, when we're doing our devotions, whatever it may be, when the Bible is opened, we are having an encounter with the living God. This is the word of God. The Bible is a book of endurance and encouragement because... God is a God of endurance and encouragement. So we need to be reading the Bible expectantly. Verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we worship the Lord harmoniously. We worship the Lord harmoniously. Verse 5 sort of branches into a prayer. He's saying, may God do this in your lives. May he give you the endurance and the encouragement that's needed so that you can live in harmony with one another. 
live in such harmony. Four words in English. It's one word in Greek, a compound word, the word for single and the word for mind. It means one mind. It's interesting that he uses this phrase, one mind, because the previous chapter he had been talking all about disagreements. How can we be of one mind If we're supposed to agree to disagree, well, look what it says. Live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Again, all of these points are rooted in who Jesus is. We selflessly serve because Jesus selflessly served. We can live in harmony when we are in accord with Christ Jesus. A little while ago, Lindsay and I had the opportunity to go to a a musical performance downtown Toronto in an orchestra. And at the beginning, the first violin or the concert master comes out. They're the last to to come uh, come onto the stage. And they play a note on their violin. And then the rest of the orchestra makes sure that they are in tune with the concert master. That that's what being in accord is like. If we are going to be in harmony, listen, on the, on the stage at this performance, there's all kinds of instruments, different shapes and sizes and, ta- and, 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 and volumes and tones. And they'd all sound horrible if they were not tuned with one another. But when the first violin comes out, everyone is tuning to the, to the concert master, to the first violin. We can live in harmony only when we are in accord, when we are tuning ourselves to who Jesus is. And then it says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice. It's harmony, multiple voices, but there's one voice. And it says in verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We welcome one another. We live in harmony with one another for the glory of God. If you're here this morning, you were probably greeted by one of the members of our welcome team. They might have passed a Bible to you. They might ask, answer some of the questions that you have after the service. But I want to be absolutely clear that if we're going to live as a church in light of Romans 15 verse 7, this right here, this is a welcome team meeting. We're all on the welcome team. Just like, I mean, we have a worship team and we have people here who are leading the music, but that doesn't mean that they're the only ones worshiping. We're all on the worship team. And we're all on the welcome team. You don't just have to volunteer and have a lanyard and a name tag to be friendly. Again, we're not here to please ourselves. We're here to please our neighbor, to build them up. And so all of us need to be on the lookout to be greeting newcomers to be introducing ourselves, to make it our aim to love and to serve one another. And this can happen when we trust in the God of endurance and encouragement to help us to live in that harmony. 
And the goal, notice here, is worship. Going back to verse 6. Together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The aim is worship. We so often assume wrongly to our detriment and the detriment of our church thinking that we can worship God vertically when things are not right with our brothers and sisters horizontally. I mean, Jesus could not have been any more clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. In the context of worship, this is Old Testament worship, but it applies to us today. If you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come off for your gift. Make sure that your horizontal relationships are right. Don't assume that you can just jump to the vertical relationship. God's heart is for us to be united to worship harmoniously. Because when we start to, we're, we're, like, we're like the member of the orchestra that, that, that is not tuning with the other instruments. And so we're way out of tune. And we may be playing as skillfully as we want, but it sounds horrible because we're playing in the wrong key. So Jesus tells us about this importance that if we think possibly that we might have offended someone, then we got to drop everything and go to them. But then later in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So it's not just on the onus of the person who thinks they might have offended someone. The responsibility is also for the person who has been offended. And so if we're all reading the whole Bible, if, if we all believe that whatever was written was written for our instruction, then some of us at different times are going to have to obey Matthew 5. Others of us are going to have to obey Matthew 18. And eventually, we're all going to meet in the middle. And all of the offenses and misunderstandings are going to be dealt with so that we can, with one voice, after dealing with the horizontal, we can worship in the, in the vertical. We worship the Lord harmoniously to bring glory to God. And that our worship, the worship that happens within the family of God, is expected then to overflow and spread into our neighborhoods, into our communities, and to the very ends of the earth. This leads us to our fourth commitment as people of hope. As people of hope, we reach the nations intentionally. We reach the nations intentionally. In verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became, again, here's Christ again. Everything that he says, he's basing it off Christ. For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised, those are the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The Gentiles, those are all the non-Jewish people. That's most of the people in this room from different languages and nations and countries and geographical areas. We're all part of this grand plan. And it started with Jesus fulfilling the promises made to the patriarchs. To the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. To bless him. To give him a land. To make him into a nation. But that blessing was supposed to overflow to all of the other nations. 
And then you can see all of these quotations here. And let me just plot them on the, on the screen here for you so you can see what Paul's doing. Romans 15, 8, you can see it in your Bible. He talks about promises made to the patriarchs. That's from the book of Genesis. And then in verse 9, that, that quotation, I will praise you among the Gentiles, that's something David said after a crisis in his life. And he saw God come through for him. He saw God rescue his nation. And that said, made him think, i got to let the rest of the nations know about how great our God is. That's found in 2 Samuel. And then in verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles. That's in the book of Deuteronomy. That's when the people were about to enter into the promised land. And then in verse 11, he's quoting Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And then in verse 12, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 11. In him will all the Gentiles hope. Now, why, why am I showing you this? Why, why even does Paul seem to quote all of these, these different verses? Well, you see what he's doing? Especially for the, his readers that would have known their Bibles. Is he showing all the way back to Genesis and then Deuteronomy after retelling the... So the at the establishment of the people of Israel, God talked about the nations. And then when the people were about to enter into the promised land, he's talking about the nations. When they're in the promised land and they have a great and mighty king like David, he's talking about the nations. In their worship songs and their singing at the temple in Jerusalem, they're supposed to be talking about the nations. And in the book of Isaiah, in the prophets, in the prophecies that are made, talking about the nations. What Paul is getting at here is this idea of a multilingual, multinational gathering of people from around the world to worship Jesus Christ. This is not a new idea. This has always been God's plan. That God would gather together people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to with one voice to harmoniously worship the Father. And so we as a church must reach the nations intentionally. This needs to be our heart. Missions needs to be our heart because missions is God's heart. Sharing the message of hope in a world that is absolutely devoid of hope is the heart of God. Paul shares the heart of God in verse 13, bringing all of this together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Notice how this passage is completely Trinitarian. I, I kept mentioning how we can't stop talking about Jesus. Jesus is the reason for every command that he gives but then in verse 6, he talks about God the Father. And now in verse 13, he says, all of this is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We won't be able to reach the nations unless we receive the spirit of power, Acts 1.8. Then we can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We can't live harmoniously with one another unless we are filled with the Spirit. We can't read the Bible unless we understand that the Spirit has inspired it and will illuminate it for us. And we can't serve one another selflessly unless the Spirit gives us the strength to do so. 
And so, loved ones, this is what we are aiming to be as a church. We are called to be a people of hope. A people of hope who follow the God of hope. And yes, loved ones, our our church is now called hope, but we need to understand there is a reason for our hope. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus.